Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. So, oh, delightful. Real pleasure I'm, to have you I on. love, Eng- I miss England so much. Oh, uh, I love London and um, it's fun to be a Californian, <laughs> like a beach person. I've lived uh, most, most of my life within a mile of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. Like I like to live right, right near the shore. <clears throat> and like once I was in London, and I was like looking around, like where am I? Where's the where's the tube? And so this guy comes walking along on the street, and I go, well, he looks like he knows his way around. And it was this wearing a bespoke suit, this fantastic looking guy. And I said. Um, could you tell me where's the subway or the tube? And and like for half a second, he goes like it was like you you don't talk to me. Do do understand? Like I'm a high class person. You don't just speak to me without being introduced for about half a second. And then you saw I could see him process my accent, and then go. He's an American, and then shift to being friendly. And then, like, he's probably a Californian. He could tell. And then he just dropped the whole thing. And all of a sudden, I was his friend. Uh, and he was like, took me under his wing and was showing me. Uh, um, we don't have that, that same, like, same structure. Yeah. Like, yeah. Here, Camille and I were both born right, right here at the beach, near the beach in LA, and our mothers were. But in Los Angeles, if you're here for a a week, you're an old timer. It's like, if you're here, you're a denizen, (laughs) you you own it. If you hear you're an inhabitant, it's a totally different, different attitude. Yeah, 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 there's there's a constant um, class war on the streets of Britain, I felt when I I lived in Japan for a couple of years, and when I got back to London, I was just in shock at how at this striation, the, the, the levels, <clears throat> the barriers in the streets. Yeah, wow. Cool, well... It's to me. It's kind of like, it's, it's exotic. <laughs> achieve that kind of order. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. And but you know that brings up about the point that the meditation traditions come from these intense caste systems. Yeah. And the people who wound up in the monasteries might have been just the debris, the people who couldn't fit in. Yeah. Br- broken and and weird and <clears throat> transgender like they didn't talk about it. There's very few notes, but in in the monasteries, people who, like, why would somebody join a monastery when, when everybody's supposed to get married and have kids? It's, it's people who, when they hit puberty, whatever age that would be, 10 or 11 or 12 or 13, just freaked out and said, I'm out of here. Or their parents sold them to the monastery. Mm. Um because there was no food, they couldn't feed them. Mm. For much of, for much of human civilization time, for much of time, 
there there would be famines and times when there's no food and literally people were starving even if they were farmers and so they would give one of their kids to the monastery so it's a, a motley crew yeah wow man i love that we've dived straight in but lauren for a minute could you introduce yourselves <laughs> to our listeners because oh. uh, <laughs> i don't think so, some of them may not have heard of you and it'd be um oh. uh, i've watched okay. like nearly every interview i can find of yours on, on uh, youtube or whatever but um uh, yeah be great to get an intro so welcome to the show, okay. Lauren. Who are you? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Jasmine. So my name is Lauren Roche, and I grew up at the beach in Southern California, uh, surfing, sailing, uh, skiing, body surfing, diving <laughs> for fish in abalone, and hunting. My dad uh, had read Hemingway, and uh, so men hunt. So from the time I was seven, I would go on hunting expeditions with my father to deer hunting, and we'd eat, eat the deer, and we'd go to Africa and hunt. And by the time I was 10, I was like a really good shot. So I could wander around Africa alone wow. while my dad was off um, hunting big game and just hunting and fishing and feeding the tribe. Oh, and also cars. You, uh, it's important to have a sports car. So I drove all kinds of of race cars. Um, these the the uh, '60s era American sports cars. And when I was 18, I was working my way through college at the University of California at Irvine, this new campus. That's uh, in Orange County, it's just south of Los Angeles, about um, 100 kilometers. <clears throat> and we had to be in experiments as part of being a, a student. We had to be in experiment every quarter, which is about 10 weeks. So I signed up to be in an interesting sounding experiment on brainwave biofeedback. And they had a physiology lab in in one of the new buildings and it's wasn't even occupied yet so there's a physiology lab inside this brand new huge building and there's no one else in the building and or at least at, on those two floors so it's just ultra quiet and the physiology lab was uh the several rooms and there was a room that was completely black out completely dark and completely soundproofed. And I was inside what's called a Faraday cage, which is like a copper, think of uh, a screen door, was copper to block out electronic signals. And I came in and they put wires all over my head and my, my hands and my body. And I was a control subject. So I got no brainwave biofeedback. They just said, don't move too much, you'll rip off the wires, and we'll be back in a few hours. They close the door, and I'm there, <laughs> I'm there in this pitch black room, utterly silent, with utterly about as silent as you could get without going to extreme measures. On this, the, one of those Barco lounger type chairs, it's really super comfortable. <laughs> and just no instructions whatsoever. 
Now, it was 1968, and I hadn't heard of meditation. So there's like no information about what you're supposed to do. So I was just there, sort of like you are in the ocean when you're surfing. Surfing, you know, most of the time, if you describe surfing, it's paddling, which is maybe 20% of the time, waiting, which is maybe 40 or 50 or 60% of the time, and then you get a ride for 30 seconds. That's like, it's mostly what surfing is. So I was used to just being in nature where you just like, you just be there and you perceive with your senses, the see, there's seeing, there's vastness all around, there's hearing. So I would just, well, okay, blackness and silence. And I sort of fell into a level of relaxation that was beyond anything I had experienced. And athletes experience intense relaxation. If you've ever run a marathon or swam, swam a long ways, when you stop and if you just lie down, your whole body's vibrating with fatigue and it's an incredible experience. Well, this was falling into relaxation the way that athletes will fall into restfulness after long exertion. Like if you go for six hours, there's this state you enter where your your whole body is just a hum, like a motor. Well, what this was, I say fell into just the primordial experience of what a body is. This is the life of the cells. This is the hum, the hum of life itself. So there is the breathing. Yeah, that's interesting. There's a heartbeat. And then underneath the breath and the heartbeat was just this sense of a quiet, ready aliveness. Just completely alert with all senses, but alert to nothing. Because there was nothing, there's nothing to see at all. There's like not one pinpoint of light. There wasn't one sound. And so in a certain way, it was like falling asleep. Like we fall asleep every night, but I fell awake. So I fell into the state of intense aliveness, way beyond anything I ever knew. Now, in a perfect day of sailing, it's it's incredible. If you ever... I used to sail catamarans, and so you're out in the ocean. I love sailing in storms. And you're just with the waves. And after that, there's an incredible feeling, you know, of aliveness. And surfing, diving under waves, skiing. This was more intense in terms of being physically present, alive, and vital way more than I had ever experienced. It was just a relaxation so total that it, it there's a zone of utter fearlessness. There's like zero fear. Mm. And I'm always a little afraid when I go in the ocean. Like there's, you know, there's sharks and creatures. I think. And, and um, I've been in the ocean my whole life. So there's a, there's a little bit of fear. There's always a tingle, like what's that? Where are the currents? Where are the riptides? Where are the waves? Where are the creatures? 
how far am I from shore? Is that within my swimming capacity? There's a certain kind of like a light level of fear being in nature. This was no fear. So I dropped into a zone where there's not one particle of fear in my body, this utter relaxation. And space itself seemed to become friendly, again, made out of some sort of texture. It's as if the universe itself is this friendly place. And after, I think it was about two and a half hours, the, the research assistant came on the speaker, said, okay, we have enough data. And I said, I think you better give me a while. Because when he said that, I, I felt my body, I felt like I need a while to like rev up the neurons <laughs> from this state of total timeless absorption in just being. When I walked out of the lab, I was in the state of aliveness that is like the state after an incredible day of surfing or sailing, but many times more intense, like colors were incredibly vivid. And when I would look at somebody, it's like I could see the life force in them. And when I look at plants, there was like a life force in them. So I went to the lab as part of the experiment every day for several weeks. Wow. And I got used to functioning in this state of total relaxation. And I sort of got addicted to it. <laughs> and that's the story of my life. Like taking calculus tests, I would... I would be in the taking a test and my mind was so clear that I would go, Oh yeah, I saw that formula last night when I glanced at the textbook and I could just in my mind see the formula and see the hints from the textbook. And then during the test to solve it. And then in English class, I would just sit down like they'd give you, you have to write an essay. I would just go, okay, here's my outline to write the essay and turn it in early and it almost never functioned that well in my life. So I was functioning, like in every level, I was functioning way better than I had ever functioned. Mm. Taking calculus tests, writing, talking to people, and just moving around the world. So I thought, this is great. So the, the lab experiment had me there for a couple hours a day, every day. And then this experience of being just completely clear, all my senses functioning superbly, it lasted full on for a month. And then it started to fade away. And that's, that's when I started to study yoga and meditation. So I wanted to ask, I love this story, by the way. Um, I've, I've heard you, you mention in other interviews that um, you went through a period of really intense practice doing asana and meditation, like in a, in a, in a repeat. And I wanted to, to dig in a little yeah. bit to what, what asana you were doing, what kind of practice were, were you a part of in those days? 
Yeah. Well, the we learn the fourteen like a fourteen basic asanas. Okay. And it was a flow. So it was an easy flow where you don't hold the asanas for a long time. It's it's about moving every joint of the <clears throat> body. Mo- moving moving in all dimensions. Mm. And and it was I was so lucky because just the year before they had the attitude in my school was we'll just meditate all day get as many hours of meditation as you can and they would do these long sits where they would just sit for hours and hours <clears throat> when when i was in my teacher training i was 19 and 20 and they had come up with this uh, program or this the sequence where you do you do some easy pranayama. It's called sukha pranayama. Just just in and then out. Then you do this full set of asanas. It might be twenty minutes. And and then you do pranayama again for a couple minutes, and then meditate. And we all meditated about 45 minutes. Like we were supposed to meditate for 25 minutes because we're all in our early 20s. But we all would meditate for 45 minutes, which is, must be some kind of body cycle. And, and then do pranayama again and then the full fit of asana. Right. And this is so brilliant. I'm so lucky that I arrived at the time where they had figured that out because it's absolutely brilliant. When, because after months of this, I was still, and I was just in a room all day. I was just in in great shape. I could go run on the beach. It felt physically yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So it helps you to integrate what meditation does. Yeah. Yeah, meditation can be dangerous in that it opens up your senses so much that you can't cope. You're not ready to be a different person. Mm. What's really, That's interesting. What's really interesting about that yeah. is like um, after actually my first Vipassana meditation retreat, I hadn't spoken to many people about this or, or told them, but for the next two weeks after I was almost crying every single day and it just and I lived on the fourth floor of um off of Wimbledon High Street prior to that I didn't hear like any buses you know you get you habituate to all the noises but every single time a bus or even a car went past it felt like I was getting hit in my, like, uh-huh. my uh-huh. body yes and it was so funny because it wasn't even that i could really hear it so much i could just feel it yes yes um, um that's called the dilation syndrome mm. and so yes. your senses wake up so much and and it's if you haven't developed calluses yeah. so to speak yeah. to deal with it so everything is shocking mm-hmm. so, so people that meditate a little bit too much for their body capacity, say over a period of months, 
can develop that semi-permanently, and then they become artificial introverts, sort of afraid of the world. Mm. There's a lot of people that have had this go on for years, and their whole life becomes about that sort of cringy yeah, yeah. being hit, and then they try to adapt, and there's various things that people do to adapt. So when that happens, you want to do uh, off complementary meditations that sort of build up boundaries, do things like I'm uh, like in Tai Chi and Qigong and Aikido, where you create, you cultivate the sense of boundaries around you and you meditate on that Mm. instead of noticing. So a simple way of looking at what happened is that you were practicing mindfulness, which is to a great extent, sensefulness, noticing teeny sensations. And so it turned up the dial on your kinesthetic senses, just like if we turned up some dials on this computer recording, we get all kinds of feedback. You turned up the dial, the, the amplitude, the volume on kinesthesia, hearing and kinesthesia, and then creating feedback loops. That's, that, that's solvable, by the way. Yeah, I, it totally solvable. I didn't. It's to I, be expected. Yeah, I didn't experience it after, but every other person who I'd spoken to later on, they hadn't mentioned anything like that. So I thought something was wrong with. Well, not wrong with me, but maybe I was just more sensitive than others. Oh, I've it's had. It, yeah, it, I've had very similar experiences <laughs> after retreats as well. The world can be feel like a bit of a brutal place after you've spent. <laughs> 10 days contemplating your navel. Yes. Yes. And that's to be avoided. Um, That's from lack of boundaries. If you dial up your sensitivity, you also need to dial up strength of boundaries. And um, one of the problems in meditation, in denial, is that the meditation world tends to deny that there's negative side effects, where there's lots of negative side effects to meditation. Mm-hmm. And, and any real, any real sport, sport, everybody knows that there's dangers. Any, anything. Tennis. tennis. There are people playing tennis over there. Well, there's, lot, there's lots of different tennis injuries. There's minor ones like getting blisters on your feet to getting sunburned to do, overusing and your tendons. Singer. Singers injured their voices. Mm. Adele had to cancel cancel these huge concerts in England because she she loved making those huge sounds and she blew out her voice. Every sport. sport. Um, In meditation, there's a sense of denial, so they don't notice. They're not recording the negative side effects. And the other is not listening. You, if you really listen to students, you'll find out it's incredible. Like when I'm, I train meditation teachers, and one of the things that we do that's so simple is when people come to learn to meditate, just listen, do two sessions. Just tell me about your natural meditative experiences. When do you feel most at home in the world? When do you feel thrilled to be alive? What are your natural doorways 
in to where you just feel like you're in. I'm in me. I'm being me. Okay, well, build let's your build your meditation practice to be that. That's and that's actually what meditation is. Meditation, meditation practices in general, it's how to be at home in yourself and thrilled to be alive. Mm-hmm. That's what a meditation is. That's what OM means. Mm-hmm. It's at home. I'm at home in the universe, and I'm... I'm ecstatic to be. It's a privilege every moment to participate in creation. It's a thrill. It's a privilege. And 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 we find that if you just listen to people, have a couple of sessions where like an hour and a half, you just well tell me about your net when, and you'll and you'll find the most amazing things. Almost everybody has had profound. Meditative experiences. They don't don't know that that's meditation. It's not categorized as meditation. And as you you listen to people, they'll teach you how to teach them. And also, it feels like such an honor when people are talking about their there's moments when they experience the magic of life. It feels it feels like a privilege. Mm to be there listening. It's almost like you'd pay them. When a teacher's in this position, it's like you almost want to pay the student because they're teaching you something that's infinitely precious. And it's just extraordinary. I mean, meditation is a natural human experience. It's instinctive. It's built into our bodies. And the more natural you are in your approach to yourself, the better. The in the lab, um, you, at the University of California at Irvine, after a while, they developed UC Irvine Medical School, and they were doing physiological research on meditation. They had people. I would go in. They would stick needles in my arms and take blood samples every couple of minutes. UCLA, UCLA was doing um, really good research and Harvard Medical School was doing research. So these three centers of research were focusing on the physiology of meditation. And it turns out that with, even with the beginner, someone who's had just a couple of weeks to get used to the idea of meditating, and eat with the simplest meditation instructions. Like, okay, just pick something you want to think about. Okay, go ahead and hang out with it. and But don't make any effort. Don't block out thoughts. Just welcome everything. Even even in a lab, which is weird. It's weird to go into a lab to meditate. Maybe measuring a physiological baseline and then say, okay, meditate. And in three minutes, the person... People would drop into a state of rest deeper than deep sleep. This it, and this is what I experienced spontaneously when in the lab that I was in in 1968. You drop into the state of relaxation deeper than deep sleep, and it's like so refreshing. So this is a major scientific finding, and and um, although it was replicated over and over and over again in the 70s and 80s. Still it's not. still not what people are thinking about when they think about meditation. 
I think this is the best vacation I've ever been on. I don't need any tools. I don't need to interfere with my mind. I don't need to work at it. I can just give over to this innate instinctive rhythm. I love how in your book, um, Meditation Made Easy, you emphasize this a lot. And Bill actually bought the book for me, which was a lovely gift. And when, you, <laughs> when you, like, I find it's so rare that other teachers really emphasize the human experience just naturally. And how do you see meditation being spread in this way? Like that this is actually how you would say, you know, it's easier than, you know, just even having to sit down and f- like, follow some formulaic structure of an exercise how do you see this being spread and like what are the barriers to it to it give me say that again but it, like give me a specific get more specific in your question so in terms of like the mainstream apps and uh places that are taught even in schools it's all based around i think the more formal meditation styles but it's mm. so rare to find someone who is advocating the style of meditation that you would say, like you would be speaking about. Speaking yeah. about. Um, um, yeah. And how can we, you know, allow others to know more about it in such a way when the main offering is what has always been offered? That is, that is the challenge. And, the things that are more formal, they sound appealing because people people really want to know. Like people, they really want something that helps them. Now, part of what's going on is that um, the people who are meditating, to a great extent, many of them, they don't go to church anymore. Uh, and so... What's, what's happening is that the, the meditation teachers take on the role of being a priest <laughs> and teaching religion. And so, like, if you think about, like, a white people's church, it's all, you go in and you sit, you sit still, and you try to act spiritual and be all respectful. Like, you're, you're kind of sitting there. And so Westerners who approach meditation are since being blindsided. And there's the meditation, what is coming at us through our neglected religious yearning. So meditation is sitting, it's actually just sitting in church trying to be good, trying to be observant. And there's a lot of value to that. However, if you want to just be able to, like, every day, week after week, year after year, be able to walk in the door and say, instead of saying, like, God, I need a beer right now, or, oh, I need a glass of wine, or, I had such a day, I need to smoke something. (laughs) If you want meditation to be so, it works so well that it's instinctively satisfying, 
then you need to construct your practice so that you're utterly natural with yourself. And it doesn't work to be reverent or mindful. If you, people are mindful all day at work. People are concentrating all day at work. If you make meditation into being work, then you'll have to go somewhere else to cut loose. So this approach that I'm describing here is the technology of meditation that's for people who live in the world. Meditation for people who have jobs, a home, have a love life is very different technically than meditation for professional monks who their job is to act holy all day. When, when we come home from work, when we get up in the morning, we need to be so free with ourselves that it's like, bring it on. Bring on the thoughts. Bring on my to-do list. Bring on the tears. Bring on the laughter. So we need to be so free that in a space of a couple minutes of meditation, we can be like crying. We can get mad. We can feel turned on sexually. We can start laughing again. Then we can get, okay, my to-do list. Or we can be absorbed in our to-do list and endorse ourselves. Actually rejoice how great that I have a couple minutes to sit here. I've got had some peace of mind. And now I can like feel into my to-do list and all the people I'm going to see today. That's what meditation is like for somebody who's responsible and who has things to do. There's, it's a very dynamic state. And while you're deeply relaxed, deeper than sleep, you still think a lot. Because what, what the body does when in a state of relaxation is that it tunes itself up and heals. It does repair work like during sleep. And um, so this this full rotation, it's very much like a movie where you're like, okay, now I'm sexually turned on. Now I'm falling, now I'm falling asleep in meditation. Now I'm mad at my boss or I'm mad at this. Now I'm worried about this item on my to-do list. Now I'm crying and I'm laughing. And it's like, whew, now I'm completely clear. It's that dynamic. And that works. And millions of people have been taught that style of meditation. It's um, the Buddhists and the mindfulness people, they're like the best thinkers. There's, there's like hundreds or tens of thousands of therapists and people with PhDs and researchers. It's the best meditation community, the, the Buddhists, doing the best intellectual work. I mean, it's just, it's a fantastic community. The, the tradition I'm coming from, it doesn't really have a name. It's, it's in the realm of yoga and you could call it Tantra, but it, we don't know in the West, we don't know what Tantra means. It's a Tantric text and it's engineered from the beginning to be for people who live in the world. Hmm. I wonder, uh, I was hoping to ask you a bit more about that. Um, the, the, so there's a, there's a few topics that 
around Buddhism that would be interesting to explore. Perhaps the first would be, I, I wonder if you've dug into the uh, Theravadan maps of enlightenment and it'd just be interesting to hear your, your thoughts on, on that. It's so sophisticated. I mean, I've, I could say I've only glanced at the literature and a lot of my friends over the last 50, 50, 50 52 years are, are Buddhists. And I'm Tibetans. I love the Tibetan Buddhists. I just love them. And Camille does too. Camille and I met at Project Tibet in Santa Fe where I was teaching. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in the maps. And, and I'm in a sense starting at the beginning. I did, I did my bachelor's degree and my master's and my PhD at the maps that meditators make to describe their internal experiences. And so the maps, my, my engagement with the map making has been how do people make sense of their experience? And it's just, I'm interested in regular people. Like people have babies, people who are entrepreneurs, people who, who live alone, but they want to be in relationship, people who used to be married, now they're divorced and living alone, people who work in factories, soldiers. I'm interested in just regular people. What maps did they make? And there's all these sensations that we feel during meditation and afterward because we turn up the dial on sensations. There's all these emotions. Like it's, for example, with women, it's very common for women to cry for months when they begin meditating. There's a cry, the whole meditation, just cry and cry and cry and cry and cry for months, sometimes six months. There's all emotions and then all manner of thoughts. So that's that's the level of discourse that I'm engaged with. I don't um, I don't have a a critique of the the Theravada maps. It's of that we've received this incredible gift from the monks and the swamis and the lamas and the yogis of this data from their explorations of meditation. And our challenge is to take the gift of all these techniques. Like Buddha, Buddha said once, monks, I've given you 84,000 different Dharma doors for all the different kinds of people that there are. Our challenge is to accept the gift and then reinvent meditation to be truly appropriate for all the kinds of people in the modern world that are wanting to meditate, which is lots. There's lots of different kinds of people. And the last thing we want to do when someone comes to learn to meditate is impose on them some creepy technique <laughs> that's just not native mm. to them. Nice. I wonder what your thoughts are on the concept of enlightenment or awakening. Again, is I didn't. I banned the word starting in around 1975. Like I just stopped using it. Yeah. Because I, 
and the people that I was around throughout the early 70s, it was just blah, 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 enlightenment, this, blah, blah, blah. It just became, <laughs> it was just a garbage word. Yeah. Uh, used to mean that you're not okay the way you are, and there's this higher state you're supposed to get to. Uh, yeah. And it's exactly like, it was exactly like saying, like to regular people, dude, your car is for shit. <laughs> Got to buy a new car of this particular brand. Yeah. Like, yeah. Otherwise, you just feel bad about yourself. Yeah. So I didn't use the word for decades. And then about 10 years ago, I thought, but that's a beautiful word. Like, <laughs> let's use enlightenment lowercase and like an invisible air quotes. Like to talk about, let's use it in a positive yeah. way. I think that in the West, we have to reinvent the concept of enlightenment. And it'll probably take a couple hundred years. I mean, as we all know, most of the time when somebody says, I'm enlightened, it means that they're starting a deranged cult. And they're going to be using, they're, they're converting meditation into mind control techniques. And then years later, you'll hear the inside story yeah. Yeah. of abuse and degradation. Yeah. yeah. It's really like, if I'm a Matt, Really, it's yeah. like if there's a master, then there's got to be a lot of slaves. Yeah. And as we were talking about earlier, in the in India and in these caste systems, there's people at the top who are like reincarnating. They're very privileged people, and there's lots of slaves that are just live lives of degradation. So mm. that goes on a lot in the meditation traditions. It's shame. It's shameful. So I, I actually think we're at the very beginning stages of figuring out how to make meditation truly beneficial. Because when I, when Camille and I spend every day, we interview regular people who are learning to meditate and people who have been meditating for years. And it's like, a lot of times I feel like, why waste your time meditating? You could, you could be taking a walk. <laughs> <laughs> The way people approach meditation, yeah, it's not that healthy. When people want to just sit to meditate, they have all these voices in their heads like, sit up straight, be mindful, don't have those thoughts, don't feel sexual, don't be angry, be compassionate. You're not doing it right. And it's a war. The way meditation is practiced is often as a war against the self. It's a war against also being a young person. And all these ideals. So it's not that, it's not healthy. Mm. It's, um, mm. meditation is more like dieting to, at least in, in, to Americans. It's your, you're always reading something, okay, this is going to work. You impose some weird rules on yourself. You starve yourself, you practice denial for a while. Maybe you lose a little <laughs> bit of weight. But then you've taught your body that there's a famine on. and to, that It should, because whenever you diet, it makes your body feel like, oh my God, there's a shortage of food. I've yeah. got to accumulate some fat here. And then you wind up fatter. Yeah. So people are approaching meditation just like dieting. They're constantly failing. And with each failure, they're damaged a little bit. Have you um, come across the Goenka tradition? I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on it. Well, what an amazing thing that he did and that they've all done this extraordinary what a world resource yeah 
of those retreats. <clears throat> um, one day, this, this beautiful 32-year-old young man came over for a session. And he was, in he was an artist, and he was in love with the female artist, and they had an amazing relationship. And he was very much into the Goenka tradition had been doing the retreat for years. And he brought over two of Goenka's books and he opened them both. And both of them advocated celibacy. And one, Goenka was saying this young couple came to him after years of studying with them and said they wanted to become teachers. And so his questions will, have you given up sex? And so he said, yes, we have. And so he beamed approval. So, that idea that you're supposed to be celibate, that was poisoning this young man. And he wound up breaking up with his girlfriend. And for years, he thought he was supposed to be celibate because his experience of doing Vipassana and retreat was so powerful that having this message come in that you're supposed to drop sex. And he was 32, like a healthy young man. It was... Basically, as if you gave chemotherapy to a really healthy teenager and you just poisoned, poisoned them. These ideas come in and they are like mild chemotherapy. They poison your life force. So, yeah, I followed him for a couple of years. He, he didn't come for more. He came for like two sessions. Um, but that goes on a huge amount. It, that sort of poisoning against life where you're imposing somebody else's idea of spirituality upon yourself. That goes on to a great extent in meditation. And it's not written up. Um, but there are so many therapists that are now meditating and teaching meditation that they're going to they'll start to notice this. Right now, Meditation House, it's, I think... There's too high of an opinion. Everybody thinks it's just so great. Um, and they're not, they're not looking at the technical issues. And everything has technical. If you start working out, you're going to get sore. And you have to manage the soreness. That's what, like a rest day, you work out and then you give yourself a day or two of rest. And your body heals and it becomes that stronger. But if you don't have an off day, you just start, you're just breaking down tissue and you can get a repetitive injury, repetitive so, motion injury. This kind of thing happens in meditation. So, though so, no, it's a great resource. Now, people that are healthy, I was, I was uh, teaching at one of these giant um, rock music festivals a couple of years ago. So there's like 40,000 people camping out and bands around the, around the clock. So I did a session with this guy, and he had been partying for months, getting ready for this, smoking a little pot and dancing and taking a little ecstasy and then working to organize the festival. And he was really looking forward to one of those 10-day retreats. So his rhythm was to be completely wild and rock out and dance and party, work work and dance and party and take, take substances. And then 
go to a 10-day retreat and kind of clean up and then get back to partying. <laughs> that was a good rhythm for him. It was a little bit like binging and purging. Yeah. But it was working for him for the time being. Because while he was partying, he was thinking, oh boy, I'm really looking forward to that 10-day silent retreat. Yeah. And then during the silent retreat, he could recover from the exhaustion and just the too muchness. So that was a rhythm. But if we want to meditate every day, just have meditation be just completely reliable, then you need to let meditation feel like a rave. You, you actually need your meditation to be luxurious. So you just walk home from work, take a shower, lie down or sit on the sofa and just, uh, and just be in <laughs> a concert. Uh, I anyway, don't know where my question uh, Jasmine, is going to get asked. I, I, I didn't, I don't know if I have one. Um, so what, what are your practices like now? Um, as beautifully electric as you describe. And I'd love to hear about your, your physical practice too. What are, are you surfing still? What are you up to? Body surfing and swimming. So I lost interest in boards. Um, I don't know why exactly. And cause I like to be under the water and in it. So I'd much rather dive under a wave. It's very fun. Wave, wave comes and you dive different depths depending on the wave. And then you pop out the other side. I like to be, I have this mm -hmm. craving to be in and under the water. Of course, it would board you're on top. And it's, I'm 71 or 72, I forget. And so my physical practice is, is to, to soak in profound, deep, luxurious meditation for about 40 minutes, half an hour to 40 minutes in the morning. And I use the techniques that are described in the Radiant Sutras and in Meditation Made Easy so that I'm... I'm at the world's greatest concert. Like I'm, I'm on Earth. I'm in the solar system. I'm welcoming every experience that I've ever had. I'm just in. I'm tuning the instrument of the body to have the greatest day possible. And then um, I do a little bit. Of, of asana I'm, I have a bit of a wrist injury from the gym a few years ago and from from uh, working on a writing deadline when I was injured that is a totally stupid thing to do you have to when you get injured don't work through the injury in that way um, so I have to take care of my body one of the things I do is I stay in motion so this is my standing desk and I have a couple of big screens. So I can stand here and write, and I can, I'm a touch fast touch typist, so I can look out the window at the birds and, and the harbor. And then there's a sitting desk, and then the chair for the sitting desk <laughs> is one of these, sort of, it's mounted on springs, so it's kind of bouncy. So one of the things I do is I don't fixate my spine, like I don't sit just rigidly still for 
for long. I'm always, I'm always kind of dancing. So I stay dancing. Nice. I stay, I stay, I stay in motion, even if I'm at the computer. I'm just, and at the standing <laughs> desk, balance board. I have a. Uh, That's cool. Mm. Like a balance board. Oh yeah. That's cool. So this is like surfing the floor. So I'm, I'm like, I'm in motion. That's yeah. cool. I like it. Yeah, and then I use weights. All the gyms. Yeah, I love how um, yeah. your, yeah. how you, when you first started your introduction to who you were, it began with um, living by the sea and the aspect of physical, you know, like surfing or um, using the body. And that just, when you speak about finding ways to personally have a practice, which excites you, it's so evident how you've definitely found your own in that. And I wonder how it will be for those who are beginning to start to understand themselves, that kind of a journey. It's exciting for sure but sometimes maybe a little bit overwhelming as to know exactly what is right for them. Well, one simple practice that anyone can do is think of a moment when you felt thrilled to be alive, just ecstatic. And it could be a great orgasm. It could be the afterglow after sex. It could be that time you took ecstasy and you danced for five hours until four in the morning. It could be wandering in nature, just a moment in a forest. It could be you know, giving birth or nursing the baby or playing, playing music. It could be, for some people, it's like smoking pot and listening to music. Pick, pick an experience where you're thrilled to be alive and then be mind, practice mindfulness with it. Okay, what am, how are my, what am I seeing? Now I'm okay, when I'm in this experience, like how am I seeing? And just touch that with your awareness for a couple of seconds. Okay, when I'm in this experience, I'm seeing what? Say, I don't, I only smoked pot a couple of times in my life, like 12 times. But I love, I love the experience. Um, so it's like the clock sort of stopped. Like it, the clock would tick, and then I'd be so aware of the silence, and then tick, and then silence, and tick. Where the, the space, I'd be very aware of the space between me and something that I'm seeing. Or listening to music. Like the way that... Um, the way that the notes hang in the air, the way the rhythms move me, or a taste of food. So it could be anything. It could be a vice, or it could be something aesthetic. And, okay, what am I hearing? How, do, how am I smelling? How is my breathing? When I'm in this state, what does my breathing feel like? And if you touch such an experience, whether it's you know, dancing or listening to music or sex or being in nature or being alone, being at a party, if you just simply think of it, 
recall it. And you could either write in your journal about the experience or just simply recall. You give your brain permission to function that way when you're meditating. In other words, you're giving your brain permission to dial up the intensity of your senses and to associate meditation with joy and with thrill. And that's something that anybody can do. And actually, it's a good remedial exercise for all meditators to do from time to time. It's revisit when are you feel the, when you truly feel at home in the world and thrilled to be alive and construct your practices to be that. Because we always need to be reclaiming ourselves from being lost in the traditions. In other words, bring it back to where this is about my personal experience and, and reclaim your own path instincts, your ability to navigate um, your own inner life and find your way. Because the maps are very generic. All those maps of enlightenment, those are other people and other cultures living in these amazing, elaborate cultural systems and religious systems that actually don't fully exist anymore. They're more like museum things. Where the Tibet that Tibetan Buddhism came from doesn't exist anymore. They're, they're all refugees. It's a heartbreaking and they're living in India, and they're scattered, like Padmasambhava, this genius Buddhist teacher who helped bring Buddhism to Tibet. He said, in the, in the time when iron birds fly, and chariots go without horses, then the Tibetan people will be scattered like ants, and the Dharma will go to the lands of the West or to the lands of the Red Man. They're scattered. And as a result, we have these incredible teachers and all these texts. Um, but that world doesn't exist anymore. We have to reinvent the Dharma for these worlds. Because mm. our world is in crisis. And meditation can help. Meditation can give us the ability to function superbly in crisis. And in a sense, that's what meditation is about. In the body, that's where meditation truly comes from. It's we're invoking the genius, the survival genius of the human body to integrate the opposites and, and do the impossible. And in a sense, that's what enlightenment really means. It's the full functioning of the human human body. Meditation has a great gift to give to the modern world, but we need to engineer it and build build our meditation Bill practice speaks about from the this ground up. Um, the uh, how can we have well meditation for the everyday man? Bill, do you want to speak a bit more about that? Mm. Well, it's, well, I, yeah. I learn constantly from regular people. There's these brilliant things that people invent. Go ahead. Go ahead, Bill. I, I, I'd love to hear more about that. I mean, um, I, I, yeah, I wonder about this and, and how 
our meditation can reach more people, but not in the stilted kind of form that it that it tends to. Yeah, well, we need to listen to people, and and it it's quite a skill. Like I, we live on the water, so there's fishermen. We live on a harbor. We're surrounded by water, and there's fishermen. And I was walking by. Camille and I were out for a walk yesterday, and this guy was fishing and I so I stopped and I looked at his point of view and there's just ripples of water and the sunlight sunlight shining and he was just there with the pole in the water and I said my god what a profound meditation it's an eyes open meditation where he's just there doing absolutely nothing there's a pole in water and maybe once every 20 minutes there'll be a little like a little that and if we don't know that that fishermen <laughs> might be the best meditators of all like better than any meditation teacher but then we don't really know anything i i suspect that these world class singers and, and visionary businessmen and people who explore the outdoors, that they are actually the genius meditators. And that those of us that teach meditation, we're like coaches, like we can be good teachers, but like a, like a singing coach, like Adele singing, like who's the singer that you love, Bill? I mean, I, I love Adele, Famous actually. Singer. I've been listening yeah. to her a lot. Jasmine, so we can who do you love? With Adele. There you go. Um, yeah, we'll look up her singing injuries. But like all the singers you've ever heard, they have coaches. They have singing coaches. And the coach is like, okay, your exact voice, how do you take care of your voice? How do you unfold your voice? I actually think that the meditation teachers, they're probably like okay meditators. But like here in L.A. and New York and in Australia, a lot of the star yoga teachers, they could give a shit about meditation. Meditation is this creepy thing that you teach your students for pay. And it's something that you teach to fuck them up. Like you have to blank out your mind. They quote Patanjali. What they really do is they get stoned every night in order to cut loose because they need a place where they can really relax. And meditation is this very uptight place where you're in the domain of Patanjali. And so a typical rhythm for yoga teachers, not all of them, but many of the famous ones and people who've been teaching for 10 years is that smoke pot every night or every other night take ecstasy on weekends and take ayahuasca every three months. And when I listen to them describe what they do, like getting stoned and listening to music, that's their real meditation. So you don't know, you never know <laughs> what somebody is really practicing because it's usually secret. <laughs> the, the difference with me is I actually just, I talk about what I actually do. So for me, meditation is way better than drinking wine, although I love wine. I love the taste of it. I don't drink much. Maybe a sip 
every couple of weeks. But um, wine's incredible. I mean, it blow, I, when I take a sip of wine, I, just, I can't believe that there's centuries of cultivation behind this, the science on an aura. Um, but I, I practice meditation in a way that's better than wine, better than being stoned. And I'm on a journey. I'm on a journey. So when I listen to the, the yoga teachers and meditation teachers, when they describe ayahuasca and ecstasy and marijuana, that's, they're on a profound inner journey. These are, they're having amazing experiences. And they're finally <laughs> going on a journey. They're finally letting themselves be their natural fucking self. <laughs> Yeah. Not this, not sitting in church and trying to be good, trying yeah. to suppress every thought. This is like this is yoga. Sit cross-legged so that your your knees hurt. You know, sit up straight and try to concentrate. <laughs> like, oh my god, what a workout! So their their pot and ecstasy and ayahuasca. That's the real meditation, and it's a journey, and it's profound people are having profound experiences i don't like to trust um all these substances i've been i mean at the time i was in in the lab learning um having these incredible experiences you couldn't walk <laughs> from one class to the other without being offered baggies of marijuana psilocybin lsd speed hash what else mushrooms, um, and, and peyote. And it's like, I didn't trust any of that stuff. As a sailor, I knew that to smuggle the chemicals or the substance, even marijuana, they would often, the, the smugglers would often motor up to a sailboat with the family on it, tie anchors around everybody and throw them overboard, take their boat, and then sail the packet full of marijuana and sail it into the harbor right right near me. And the boat would just be sitting there and police would discover it later with empty but with traces of blood and marijuana and it's like to smuggle stuff is a very sleazy thing. So it's because of the illegality of drugs they get very dirty. So I've never trusted my nerves to some random substance like if i was going to take ayahuasca i would want to go to south america and live there for six months or a couple of years just live with the natives eat what they eat and and find a you know find a shaman that i trusted and do the whole thing so the way that i'm approaching meditation and which is natural for people, is to let every moment of meditation be a journey where you're saying to life, when you approach your meditation practice, you say to life, okay, take me on a journey. Okay, God, okay, my soul, okay, my own life force, okay, my own inner genius, okay, the wisdom within, I'm here, I'm here, let's go. What do I need to know? Do you just say this within yourself? This is the deepest, most profound prayer. Let's go on a journey. Because meditation, just for a regular person who comes home from work, is very much a journey. It's an ordeal. It's the same structure 
as people go through on ayahuasca. It's the, it's the same mythic journey where you, it's very painful to relax, to, to quickly relax and feel your nerves healing and, and feel the tension melting off your body. It hurts in a way that we all know. And so there's an ordeal aspect to meditation because you're feeling every nerve, every muscle, every tendon. And then as you melt into relaxation, you can feel the, the kind of pins and needles of circulation being restored. And it's the same process that goes on during sleep. But in sleep, nature makes us unconscious. In meditation, we're awake and feeling everything. So even five minutes of meditation can be a profound inner adventure with where we encounter everything that we've been avoiding and face it and it dissolves and then we dissolve into peace and then we're thinking about our to-do list. Life is intense and meditation is intense and intensely relaxing. So that's the map. That's the, my approach to the, to the map making. And so we have to develop entire new teaching systems for all the different kinds of people that there are. I was working with a guy that, not the kind of guy that would ordinarily want to meditate. He, was a, he worked in construction up in Malibu. And though he smoked cigarettes and loved beer and women, but what happens to guys like when they're around 30 is after like a series of failed relationships where they realize, oh, it's me. It's not the woman's fault. Like, it's me. I need to learn how to live. Because ordinary guys who just like work hard and drink beer, it's like not enough. You don't get enough relaxation from alcohol to save the day. Because if you work all day and you come home and you're, you're with a woman, you've got to be on your game. Because women, when we're just speaking generically about male and female, of course there's transgender people and there's men that are very feminine and women that are very masculine. But the woman's brain, generically speaking, is so hardwired for emotion that you can't just drink beer and numb out. The woman wants to communicate. So here's this guy, and he was perplexed from a, bro a relationship that broke up. And we were inside. I said, oh, no, this, this isn't working. Let's go outside. And immediately, he felt more at home. Like, he would have never learned to meditate sitting inside. We went outdoors and I said, let's just look at the ocean. We were on a hill in Malibu looking out over the ocean. And I realized that his awareness, that he didn't quite know, he couldn't have explained it. His inner life was this vast horizon, like on a hill overlooking the ocean. Like his inner, and he, he loved storms blowing in. But his inner life was this huge space and he had been thinking that he had to con control it, shrink it down in order to meditate. Whereas his natural state was vast. Like he, 
he could spend all day outside under the sun. It being inside for him, that was weird. So we constructed a meditation practice for him that was his natural state, which is in his inner world, there's always a sun, there's a huge horizon. There's the sky, the storms blow in, then the stars come out. There's a mountain. And when he's operating from there, he has the inner security, the sense of both being at home, like grounded, and then welcoming the thrill of the ever-changing weather. When he was grounded in that, it's like he could handle anything. And in order to handle intimacy, because intimacy is terrifying, he had to be grounded in his natural state. And, and as a matter of fact, alcohol is not his drug. He didn't need any drugs. What he didn't realize is that his natural state is always it's what psychedelics want to create. His inner natural state with always this vastness, and I don't know how, it's just, his, it's just who he is. And there's no drug that could give him that. He's already there, but he didn't know it, and he didn't know how to in, inhabit in, intentionally. Mm. So, yeah, so people are really, really different, and you need to listen. The meditation teachers need to learn to listen to each person and then coach them to, to bring their natural self to learning meditation. We're often setting people back, like giving them the wrong techniques, oh, and they'll tricky. lose a few <laughs> Oh, tricky. <laughs> I'm amazed that you guys can even listen to this. You know, the meditation field, it sort of runs on denial. Like, I'm the guru, listen to me, I know what I'm doing. Just do this. Just practice this and everything will be okay. Oh, I love this. It's, it's so contrary to... Most of what I've heard about meditation, and and certainly I, I I learned through the Goenka tradition that was that was really where I started, and it's such a religious uh, take on it. So yeah, we love this right. stuff. We love this. Stuff. It's such a yeah, it's such a profound gift. But it, as you said, it's religious. Yeah. We, um, it's it's unethical to impose religion. On Westerners, it's not. It's not unethical. It's like if you're somebody asks for a glass of water and you put a drug in it, it's like it's going to backfire in some way. And um, meditation is a basic human instinct. Everybody has the capacity, and um, <laughs> there was this guy. This couple came to me for like to learn to meditate together, and she was a very devoted yogi. And they were at a retreat. I don't forget what tradition it was a vipassana type retreat, and and so and so she went to the retreat, and he goes, "No, I don't want to." And he he walked up the hill. There's the retreat center, and everybody's there doing, sitting for hours and hours and hours. And he walked up on the hill and smoked a cigarette and was just communing with nature. He would look down. And he had this whole readout on who the guru was, the teacher was. 
he knew the whole thing that the teacher was exploiting, sexually exploiting the women in the group. He, he just, at a glance, he knew the entire thing. He knew that the peop, the women, even though they're like these flexible, young, like 30-something yogini women, that they're going to be injuring their knees and their lower backs. He just sort of knew, he just knew the whole thing at a glance. And it's all true. I followed him for years. <laughs> we need that. We need that kind of multiple perspectives. I mean, I personally have benefited incredibly from long retreats. I mean, it's just—it's miraculous. I'm grateful every day for these long retreats, the months where I spend months and months, and for the training of how to take care of the body. Um, but this. This pattern or this sequence where you do a full set of asana and then you meditate for 25 or 45 minutes and then do full set of asana again, that is just genius. I mean, I, I wouldn't have been able to integrate all those enlightenment experiences the way that I did. Because I know people who've done it the other way, not, not moving. Yeah. It's different. And it's a pro- it can be a problem. Yeah. yeah. But each body, each body has different capacities. You know, we're, our bodies are, are different, and we always want to be cooperating with our essential nature. Lauren, we're, we're about out of time, and I just want to thank you again for. Oh, so us. thank you both so much. Such a pleasure. I wonder, can, can you can you point? We'd love to. Can you point people at where to find you on the internet? Yeah, what to buy? Yeah. Until recently, until recently, I was the only Lauren Roche in the world. It's probably it's still be <laughs> still probably true. So just go to laurenroche dot com. Yeah, and the the Radiant Sutras is a a great way into meditation. And mm-hmm. Jasmine mentioned Meditation Made Easy. This book. And then um, a couple of oh. scoundrels have taken the name. So there's some other books <laughs> called Meditation Made Easy on Amazon. So look for the, the one by me. <laughs> and then Camille is a meditation mm-hmm. genius. And, and so Meditation Secrets for Women <laughs> is, is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, come visit uh, laurenroche.com poke around and I love training meditation teachers you know, thank you so much thank you it's been a real pleasure um, yeah we'll, 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 um, we'll share the recording with you soon and uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime yeah, you know, I, I yeah. feel as though let's like, get to those other questions um, yeah. you're one of those people that when I speak to, sometimes I have it with particular mentors who become like, who are currently my mentors, but they ask me, you know, like, what do you need help with? And they give advice, but often in such a way where it's either through their own stories or direct questioning of, for me to inquire further into myself. And I always come to the place where I feel like I don't need to ask any questions. Like I already am fine. Like, and I feel like you instill 
that kind of quality in people. Well, at least during this conversation, I feel that reason. I felt like I could just listen and I, I didn't have to really say anything. Nice. Yeah. <clears throat> that I'm just okay as I am. <laughs> it's the tradition. Um, it was amazing to be 18. And, and um, when I found t- teachers in this tradition that, that uh, the Radiant Sutras comes from, that I was tutored by a circle of geniuses. And that was the same feeling I had. Like, here, go practice this. It's like, go play. Go fall in love with life. Go meditate as the way of falling in <laughs> love with life. And then just go live. And then come back if you have any questions. <laughs> so cheerful life embracing <laughs> so maybe in the future we could do a session jasmine if whenever you get appetite mm-hmm. like i want to talk to lauren again amazing we could do some co- yeah, a coaching session cool. and record it that would yeah. be awesome that would be awesome yeah so like um refining definitely your daily f- meditation practice yeah i definitely yeah. feel as yeah. though like i'm in a space right now it's so fun thank you fantastic joy is has not been the emphasis and so much i feel like a massive yearning for it yes that's so great so that's the practice then (laughs) is being with the yearning and there's you might cry and then laugh and feel intense bodily sensations and you can say to life, like, teach me, guide me. You say to your inner life and to the, your, own, your instincts and to, the, like, the spirit, the great spirit, like, lead me. Lead me into joy. Teach me. What do I need to know? Because it's actually just tuning into you. It feels like it's inside of you. It just needs permission that. <laughs> to flood your body. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I get the feeling that you're right there, it's full of joy, it's connecting with it, and giving it permission, giving yourself permission to feel that. <laughs> I gotta go. Sorry, okay. it's such a pleasure. Be so lucky. Yeah, go feed the family and all that. <laughs> all right, onward, that's what it's like. Okay. Yeah. Thank gotta you so much, Lauren. Exactly. Okay. Cheers. Okay, bye. Good night. Thanks for listening to this episode of Awake In Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Check out the show notes, listen to more episodes and find our socials at our site, awake-in.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, so do please get in touch.